All right. Good evening, everybody. We're going to get started for tonight. A couple of announcements that uh, I want to, to make as y'all get settled in. We're going to be in Leviticus 18 tonight. So uh, you can take your time to find it, and we'll make a few announcements this Sunday. Of course, this Sunday is uh, the Sunday before Thanksgiving, right? So 2023 is almost over. Hope y'all did everything you've wanted to do so far. Um, but this coming Sunday, we will not only have our regular morning worship and be in Acts chapter 17 this Sunday, but then we will also have an evening service this Sunday at 5 o'clock. At 5 o'clock this Sunday night, which will be our time together uh, with the Lord's Supper uh, before, before Thanksgiving. So we would love for you to be there 5 p.m. this Sunday evening. We'll be gathering together in our worship center for a time uh, of remembrance as well as we'll remember those who have passed on from our church body, church family this year, be reminded of them, and then we'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper. So that'll be this Sunday evening. We will not, um, you can come if you want to next Wednesday, but nobody will be here. And uh, so we will not be having our Wednesday evening programming next Wednesday, uh, being the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. So we will not have anything on next Wednesday evening. Uh, we will be meeting back on the 29th. The 29th, we will have our last Wednesday night, if I'm not mistaken. And by the way, anytime I ever give announcements, it makes everybody on the staff nervous because I just make stuff up sometimes and I don't really remember everything. So I can be lying right now and not have any idea. And those, if you read Leviticus, those are the sins that you make by mistake. You know what I'm saying? So, um, but we, uh, yeah, the 29th will be our last Wednesday night uh, together, and then we'll have off through the month of December. Um, and, and when I say off, it doesn't really mean off. Y'all know there is a lot of events going on in the month of December. In fact, the 29th, and what's the next Wednesday after the 29th? There's 30 days in November. That's the 30th. The 6th. The 6th will be our WMU evening here at the church. And so that will be, a, that we will have just the WMU. I don't think there's a meal that night, but we, is there a meal that night, Stephen? Yeah, okay. See there, told y'all I'm lying. Um, but the 6th will be uh, our WMU evening um, together. So that's, that, that are, that's the announcements that I have for you guys, just kind of getting some of our dates squared away. Um, we are thankful that our Nepal team made it back this week and look forward to some, heard some great reports there and look forward to hearing, hearing more from them. So we're thankful for them making it back safely. And uh, I spent Monday and Tuesday at the South Carolina Baptist Convention. Um, so a lot of uh, time spent there talking and seeing people, but also spending time just a, a really South Carolina Baptist Convention. You know, you hear a lot about other conventions. Maybe some of y'all don't, maybe never hear anything about them. Um, but uh, with them, I mean, just a lot of good work going on. Our president was Albert Allen from First Baptist Church of Newberry, South Carolina, a good, dear friend of mine, and he did a great job leading us, just considering what it would be as we go to the nations. I was talking with Pastor Stephen here earlier. A lot of the themes that uh, were implemented at our state convention this year, just talking about are the same things we're focusing on, we're doing here in the life of our church, and just a good, healthy time in, in our state convention um, of what the Lord is doing around our state. 2,100 churches in South Carolina and South Carolina, 2,100 Southern Baptist churches in South Carolina. In South Carolina, uh, one of the things that makes South Carolina unique is our size. I mean, first of all, we're the best state in the union and uh, everybody here knows it because if you weren't born, if you're born here, you know it. And if you moved here, that's why you're here. Um, <laughs> And so uh, we recognize that. But at the same time, being smaller, you can know everybody. You know, we have good relationships where you know all the pastors around the state, knowing the leadership, you know everybody. 
And then you can be just about anywhere in the state in just a few hours where you can travel and meet and, and get to know. I had a good friend uh, today who was the pastor of First Baptist Church, Merle's Inlet, who stopped in to see me this morning. And we had a great conversation about what the Lord's doing at his little church. He, he went to Merle's Inlet, Christopher Spires. He was elected our first vice president this year. He went to Merle's Inlet 18 years ago. We went to seminary together. 18 years ago, and they were running about 50 people and had perpetually run about 50 people. Merle's Inlet's not the easiest place in the world. You have a transient community. You have uh, um, people moving in, moving out quickly. You're in greater Myrtle Beach area, and now he's running about six or 700, and the Lord's really blessed him. And so if you're in the Merle's Inlet, Myrtle Beach area, a great church to attend First Baptist Church of Merle's Inlet there with uh, Pastor Chris Spires. But just getting to know, I mean, knowing him for some time, it just kind of testifies to the way South Carolina Baptists have always been, um, how our relationships together are important. So we're thankful for our uh, sister churches and our brother pastors, I know I am, and the work going on. So it's good, good couple days there. Glad to be back. And man, I could not wait to get back to get to Leviticus 18, unlawful sexual relations. I was like, man, I got to get back, guys. Yeah, I can't wait to get back out of the convention here. Uh, Caleb Ross reminded me that when we ended last year, right before Christmas, uh, I, uh, either last year or the year before, I can't remember, when we ended right before Christmas, we ended on Lot's Daughters, having an improper relationship with Lot. Y'all remember that? Was just a testimony to that we preaching the Bible all the way through, even if right before Thanksgiving we got to talk about improper sexual relations. Um, we are going to do it because we have a firm belief that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for us as we look to it, and we're just going to keep right on trucking through this. So I'm going to open up here in prayer, and then we'll look to Leviticus 18 uh, tonight. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for your kindness to us and allowing us to be here again this evening. Father, uh, we just come tonight just humbly before you and humbly before your word. And we ask you to help us tonight as we look to your word that you would guide us and shape us and mold us into who you would have us to be. Father, we pray now that uh, your, your kindness would be, would be seen uh, as we as we seek to uh, build our life um, in a way that honors you, in a way that glorifies your name. Father, we pray all of this in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right. In the heart of Leviticus, we have turned. Uh, Leviticus, the first half we discussed was dealing with theology, especially with what the sacrifices mean, what they were, who were who it was to offer those sacrifices, what was necessary for the priests to do before the sacrifices would be offered, how they had to be consecrated, how they had to be prepared. And so you have all of these things coming in. And so you, you, you uh, dealt with that getting up to chapter 16, which is, I consider, basically that center point of the book of Leviticus. And so you're dealing with chapter 16 and the center point of the book of Leviticus that, that goes to that Yom Kippur, that day of atonement, um, where that great sacrifice is offered once a year and it, it deals, it rotates there around the two goats that are brought, one goat, the sins of the people is laid on that goat and it is sacrificed, representing uh, the propitiation for our sins, the wrath, the death that is necessary because of sin, because the wages of sin is death, representing that in a substitutionary manner for us. And then you had the second goat where the sins of the people were laid on that goat and they took it out into the wilderness and let it go, representing that expiation part of sacrifice. So the propitiation, paying for our sins through the, uh, un under the, the, uh, the just penalty for it, and the expiation, the removal of our sins from us, removing them from us. And so we discussed, of course, always pointing to Jesus, how, how in Christ on the cross, we see he has accomplished that, you know, uh, um, he has accomplished both of those things for us, both the propitiation and the expiation. And so now 
Our sins are forgiven there. So in light of that, we turn to where we go from that theology of how our sins can be forgiven to the practical everyday, the orthodoxy, right belief on things, orthopraxy, right practice. How are you to live? Now, I want uh, to remind us again of the order here because in some ways it helps us again. We have seen this order before, and, and we'll talk about it tonight. Uh, if you remember, we, we discussed it over and over again with Exodus. When you get to Mount Sinai, and, and let me remind you, they're still at Mount Sinai in Leviticus. Even though Exodus seems like, you know, so last January, they are still at Mount Sinai here in Leviticus. And so when the Lord begins his Ten Commandments to them, he begins with, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So he begins with the understanding that he has already redeemed them from their slavery in Egypt, right? So redemption has already been made. And so now the Ten Commandments are not given to the people as a way they earn redemption. It's already been granted. The Lord has already redeemed them. The Ten Commandments were given as a way that they are to maintain the covenant promises of God, the way they are to live holy before the Lord. In other words, God has redeemed them so he can be with them. And if he's going to dwell with them, his people must live holy for he is holy. Here's how you do it. The Lord with the Ten Commandments at Sinai is establishing a new government for his people. His people had been living in Egypt under the government of the Egyptian gods, if you will, but now they are under the Lord, the one true and living God, their redeemer, their God who has saved them, Yahweh, I am who I am. And he is saying, here's how you live now in my presence, in my government, if you will. Here's what's required. We're just continuing that even here in Leviticus. We've discussed that over and over. That If you're going to live and dwell with God, then some things have to happen, right? You have to be made holy, through the sacrificial system, there has to be holiness. Your, your sins have to be forgiven. And now you have to live in light of what he has done for us. And so the sacrifice is made in 16. And in light of that now, here's how you live as my people. Here's how you live in my people. This is not about the, the covenant making of this, the the, the redemption, this is about the covenant maintenance. Here's how God's people, because of who God is and what he has done, now live. Here's how we live in light of this. And so for us, if we just think of it in the terms of king and kingdom, right? Jesus says, my kingdom has come. And so we as God's people recognize even now that our kingdom is not of this world. I admit, and I've said it before, that South Carolina is the greatest state in the union. And if heaven is like anything on earth, it'll be like South Carolina. I'm just saying. I mean, think about it. That's true, right? But our, the scriptures teach us, our kingdom is not of this world. So we live as citizens, not of this country or this state. We live as citizens of the kingdom of God. And we have a king who reigns on the throne for us. And that king became a servant on our behalf on the cross so that we may be redeemed. That, that king became that servant, that, 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 that prophet, if you will, that would tell us who God is and what he has done for us. He's... He has become that priest who has interceded on our behalf. So Jesus, our prophet, priest, and king now reigns, and we are dwelling with him through his spirit in his kingdom. So we're living not based upon the rules or ultimate authority of this world, but upon the authority of God himself and his king, Jesus Christ. And so for us, as we look to scripture, we cannot forget that. Because the very first thing we have to remember when we look at a passage like Leviticus 18 is we have to remember that we are under, and this is where it gets hard, Leviticus 18 has some tough stuff in it, mainly because in our natural sinfulness, 
even, we rebel against this very notion that we are under the authority of God. You see, everything in us wants to promote our self-autonomy, if you will. And that's, that's a, a, those two don't have to go to you. You can just simply say our autonomy. Autonomy means, auto means self. Uh, nomos is law. So self-law. In other words, our autonomy is in the idea that we are under our own authority. We do what we want to do. So we don't have to to sit under the authority of God, we, we can determine our own self, our own life, and everything in our culture and everything there has pointed to that. That was the original, that was the original lie of the devil in the garden. That's what he got him with. You can make your own decision. God is trying to keep something from you. You can be just like him. You can be just like him. And what the devil was getting at there was playing on that desire ultimately and finally that we could be our own authority. And they bought the lie and they rebelled against the authority of God and we have been dealing with the consequences ever since. And Leviticus, Leviticus is just a clear testimony of that. That's what all this is about. This is what has to happen to deal with the consequences of our sin. Blood has to be shed for the wages of, of sin is death. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so it, this sacrificial system is because we believed we could do what we wanted to do. We believed we, we were not under God's authority, but our own authority, our own autonomy. It comes because of this. And when you get to something like Leviticus 18, it's in here. It's in here because under our own autonomy, we move away from God's rule. We move away from God's law, and we start living how we want to live, and we make a mess of things. In fact, we turn the very nature of creation itself on its head. You see, all of this in here of the authority of God goes back to creation. It goes back to how everything started. God's people are under the authority of God first and foremost because God made us. God made us. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the scripture says. And so if God made us, he established this world, he established everything in it, he created us out of nothing, he spoke, everything came about, God made us. It's just like when you're growing up, y'all ever remember when you were younger? Miss Annie, you remember when you were younger? I walked with Miss Annie back to the chapel one day, and you walk into chapel back there, and there's this, this round thing sticking out, the old 1921 chapel, you know, and there's a board over the top of it. And Miss Annie said, I was baptized right in that hole right there. <laughs> I said, yeah, you remember, don't you? When we're growing up, we, we make up games all the time. I don't know about you, but me and my brother make up games all the time. And we would make up games, and the reason we'd make up games is because whoever made up the game got to do what? Make the rules. And so my brother and I fought because we loved each other. Four and a half years difference. He's older than me, and he could never beat me. This is recorded. I'll tell him to watch it later. <laughs> we fought, but most of the time over the rules of the game. Y'all know what I'm talking about? That's what we fought about because whoever made the game up gets to set the rules. And we didn't have a phone or anything like that. And when you're playing wiffle ball, you know, we had, uh, we had the Encyclopedia Britannica in there. But wiffle ball wasn't an option in the Encyclopedia Britannica. And the rules weren't easily found. And so we would fight over the rules. And ultimately, who creates it gets to decide how it's run. That's the whole point. This whole point of Psalm 19, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He gets to determine what's right and wrong. He gets to determine. In fact, this passage, let me go to y'all. I, I didn't know where this would end up. I'm probably trying my best to stall and not talk about sexual relations. But let me look with you at Acts 17. Because this is an important point. Acts 17. Acts 17. 
I'm preaching on this this Sunday, and it's a little bit of a hint, right? But listen to what Paul says when he's at the Areopagus in Athens, because Paul has to establish to these pagans that have not heard of God or do not follow the one true and living God. They got a polytheistic culture. They got this idea of creation that's real crazy and all kind of nonsense that this person did that with this one and this happened to that one and everything else came about and boom, we're here. And so they have this whole, he's having to go back and recreate everything about creation and establish God's authority. And so he says in Acts 17, uh, I found an altar. This is verse, uh, verse 23. I found an, also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him. God of the universe, Paul says, the God we proclaim, the God we follow is the one who made everything. In fact, all the way down to he gave you breath and he determined where you lived. He determined when you lived, he said. So it's God's grace to us that we're in South Carolina right now. He determined every part of it. In other words, Paul is setting up the fact that he is the authority that we must answer to. And what that means ultimately, you don't have to do what God says, but you have to answer for what you do to the Lord. And so what he says then, what he's offering us is here's, here's what is good for you. Here's my rules for life. Here's what I've designed for you. And like I said, when we looked at the Ten Commandments, the rules that God gives us through the commandments are not meant to hurt us or harm us or keep us down, right? That's what we think about rules. They're, they're trying to keep us back, keep us down, hold us back. They're oppressive in some ways from us being able to express ourselves in our autonomous way however we want to do it. They're oppressive from us. Those rules are not oppressive to us when you understand that this is the God of the universe who is telling his creation how it is that they can flourish in this world. You see, because what we know is most of the, what we see is that sin leads to pain and to heartache, to loneliness, to even depression, if you will. And so ultimately the Lord is saying, if you want to know what true satisfaction is, then you live as I have given you to live. Here's where you will flourish. Here's where you will flourish. And so in Leviticus 18, he's having to address some things that the Israelites had seen in places like Egypt. And he did not want that to be brought back to his land, his promised land that he's given them. This is not how his people who follow his rules live. This is not how they live. And so if you just take Leviticus 18, it really breaks up into three sections. You find verses 1 through 5 as the introduction. 6 through 23 is uh, uh, really kind of the, the specific sexual prescriptions that he is giving here. And then it concludes with... 24 through 30, which is this summative kind of motivational uh, statement for his people to follow after him. He says, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, by the way, if you look back at chapter 17, that's how it started. In fact, the chapters uh, recognize, first of all, chapters and verses were not in the original, right? Moses didn't go, okay, chapter 18. Um, Chapters and verses were added later to the text, especially when we got, you know, when they were, they were laid out to try to find them. In fact, verses, y'all know verses weren't added until the 15, 1559 with the first Geneva Bible, Bible translated in Geneva in the English. And the Geneva Bible was the first study Bible. 
And so verses were added so you could easily refer back in the study notes to where they're talking about. So up until 1559, the scriptures only had chapters up until that point, verses added in 1559. The King James used the Geneva Bible in 1611, used the Geneva Bible as its basis for how it would translate. So it kept the same verses with the Geneva Bible. But King James, who was no friend of those in Geneva, didn't like some of the notes, so he kept the verses and just kicked out all the study notes. And so ultimately, King, uh, the Geneva Bible establishes the verse chapters and verses. And I've, I've told you all, there's some places I don't like where they put verses or chapter breaks, but they establish that that is not inspired by God, but it is man trying to give us good reference. And we like it. It helps us. We can refer easily back to a big book. And so you'll see how Leviticus helps you, though, and helps those guys who were doing those chapters because it's simply every just about place. It says, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, verse 8, for chapter 1 of verse 17, 18, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, 19, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying. And so you kind of get these headings here in the text itself in Leviticus as the Lord spoke to Moses, saying. And that gives us really looking at, at we start, the Lord speaks to Moses, and remember he's still at Sinai at this point, receiving from the Lord. The Lord speaks to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you live, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I'm bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. Again, the Lord, and we'll see this in a minute, he is drawing a line away from those Egyptians and the Canaanites. You are a different people. You're my people. You shall follow my rules, as verse 4 says. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. That brings me to that first, that first point I want to make in chapter 18. And I've already mentioned this. God's people submit to God's authority. In chapter 18 alone, there is six times he tells the people, I am the Lord your God. We saw it here. There's, there's three times in the first five verses. I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord. You look down at verse 6. I am the Lord. You look again over to verse 21. I am the Lord. And then the very last statement of chapter 18. I am the Lord your God. This is not something that he's just slipping in. This is not just an um or an ah for the Lord, a, a, a filler. He is making a statement and a claim. First of all, I think part of this, he's making this command here to show them that what he's teaching them is going to be difficult. There's an understanding that this, this is going to be stuff that you're going to have to do. And so the Lord is making it clear where it's coming from. This is not Moses coming up with some lines of how you should live. This is God speaking through Moses. And so when God says, I am the Lord your God, if you notice there, he uses that, that phrase, I am the Lord your God or I am the Lord, Remember, Lord, in all capital letters in our English Bible, L-O-R-D, each one is, is a capital, is not the Lord yelling at his people. It's the Lord referring back to Exodus chapter 3 whenever Moses said, who's sending me? And he gives him his covenant name. I am who I am, Yahweh. And so when Yahweh is used in the text, He's referring to, and we have other words, Adonai and some Jehovah, other words for God or Lord that may be put in place. But when Yahweh is used, our English translation puts L-O-R-D in all caps. And so, in other words, he's telling the people, I am the one who identified myself to Moses. I am the one who brought you out of Egypt. And if you remember how I brought you out, I am the one who systematically destroyed all the gods of Egypt by bloody in the Nile, by turning the sun to darkness, by sending the gnats and taking the herds. All of those things the Egyptians worship, the Lord showed all of them that he is the God who reigns and they have no power over him. He systematically destroyed the gods of this earth, the gods of Egypt, brought his people out. That's who I am. He's not just kind of saying, hey, 
I'm your daddy, right? He's saying, I am your redeemer. I'm the one who's made a promise. I am the one who has called you out. I'm the one who's taken you. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I'm keeping my promises. And so he's calling that. And his authority then is not just him asserting who he is. He's not just simply saying, he's not just simply asserting who he is, but he's asserting who he is and what he has done. Remember, remember those two things are so important when we understand who God is and what he's done. How important that is goes, all, goes back to even our salvation. Jesus says, uh, I mean, Paul tells us in, in, in Romans 10 that, that, that if we confess with our mouth, Jesus is good. I'm glad you all know that. Confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in our heart that God raised him from the, we will be saved. Those two phrases, confess that Jesus is Lord, is an admittance of who Jesus is. We know who he is. He is Lord, right? And believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead is a call to what he has done for us. You see, remember, for Paul, the resurrection was the linchpin of our salvation. And so without the resurrection, then we've got nothing, he says. We're supposed to be pitied. But because of the resurrection, everything Jesus ever said is true and everything he ever did is true. And so ultimately, it's not just who he is, but it's also what he has done. The fact that he is Lord and he has died for us and been raised again. Those two things are how you are saved. That's why you've got to get the name of Jesus to the nations as fast as you possibly can because the only way the nations can be saved Call upon the name of Christ Jesus the Lord. Believe who he is and know what he's done for them, right? Nobody's getting to heaven and walking up and seeing Jesus and going, hey, my name's Josh, nice to meet you. We're there because we know who he is and we know what he's done. And so we have to get that name there. So ultimately when the Lord is saying, I am the Lord, he's saying, here's who I am. Here's what I've done for you. Let me remind you of that. So God's call to authority there is not just him asserting himself as this authority over all things, though he has every right. His call to authority is him reminding the people of who he is and what he's done for them. Who he is and what he's done. Really, any command for authority, it really matters who makes it, doesn't it? Any command that we have to follow in, in life or, or that comes to us, it really matters who makes it. You, can, you, you have this in anywhere. I mean, you, you can see it in kids. I mean, if, if, if uh, for example, my own kids, some of them here, if the older brothers walk into the younger brother and tell him to clean up his room, guess what the younger brother's going to do? <laughs> Whatever. Y'all know, right? Why? Because he doesn't carry that authority. But when daddy comes in, I would like to think <laughs> that I make a command, what happens? Doesn't always work this way. It's a good testimony for us. But when, he, when, when, when daddy comes in, clean up your room, it carries a different weight with it. And so the authority here is not Moses saying, hey, y'all need to do this, right? Which the people clearly, whenever Moses says y'all need to do this, doesn't always do it. They react against Moses. But this is the Lord making it. So any a command for authority that comes from it matters who makes that command. I am the Lord your God. I am the one who saved you and redeemed you, the one who created you and made you. That's who I am. And so this is based upon that. Now listen, we are all... Uh, under some sort of authority. It's, it's, it's foolish for us to think we're not. And I, I say some of that could be. Your authority in your life may be your personal opinion. It may be that. I may, you, you just do whatever you want to do is personal opinion. That may be your authority, that autonomy that you love so much. Your authority may be majority opinion or law. That's really where our society normally lands, right? What the majority thinks. 
new book out called Truman. It's a, it's a longer book, but he shows, especially in this idea, using the sexual revolution that we have seen over the last 60 years in our society, he's shown how things that were unacceptable become acceptable, right? How our collective conscience as a people shift one little thing by one little thing and how it's like just moving just an inch here and an inch here and an inch here until you're going a whole different direction from where you were and you're sitting there going, how did we get here? But what's accepted is totally different than what was accepted before because society has completely moved and shaped. And more people that want to admit their conscience, their idea of right and wrong is just simply shaped by society. Shaped by society. Or shaped by personal opinion and society, right? Where, where we see, and, and these things are passionate, and we're dealing with people, and they're hard conversations, and so our passion overweighs even the word of God, and we think, but I can't, they seem so sincere, even in their sin. We don't like to speak to it. It moves our own conscience and our own mind. Personal opinion, majority opinion, or God's authority. Who is it that we are going to respond to? Who is it that we're going to listen to? Who is it that we're going to follow? We're following somebody. Don't get it twisted. We are following somebody. We oftentimes think we're on our own, making our own decisions, but rarely is that ever, ever true. Who is it that we'll follow? The Lord says, I'm the one who saved you. Follow me. The issue of authority, and the reason why I've spent a good bit of time on that tonight, I think is the crucial issue in our society today. The crucial issue in our society today is the issue of authority. In Scripture, the authority of God and the law of God, as I've said, is based in creation itself. God is creator. In fact, chapter 18, we, we need to recognize that God created good things. In, in, in the book of Genesis, we saw it in chapter 1 and chapter 2. At the end of Genesis, uh, you know, Adam falls asleep. He can't find a mate suitable for him, you know. I mean, that, that goes all the way from relationship, which includes sexual, physical, and all the other things. He can't find any suitable for him. The Lord caused him to fall asleep, takes the rip from his side. He wakes up, and y'all know what Adam does? He sings poetry. Adam set the standard for all of us men. He sees his wife, and he rejoices. He sings. This is right. This is good. And they are is naked or naked? I can't remember which one's supposed to be said. They are naked and not ashamed. It's a statement. It's a statement of satisfaction with what God has made. It is good. It is good. And that includes, Lord, forgive me, Mom, but it includes sex. It includes God created these things, and they are grounded there. And it's trivial and trite, but he did not create Adam and another male to be together. He created Adam and Eve. And so even the homosexual relationships that we see today that people say, well, there's not in Scripture anything speaking to these things, the whole trajectory of Scripture speaks to this. Genesis 2 speaks to this. This was God's good design. This was God's good design, and it's grounded in creation. And because he designed the marriage relationship, the sexual relationship, he gets to define the marriage relationship and the sexual relationship. He gets to define the good purposes that it has. God, we don't always like this, God owns us. Now, I say it that way because much of modern man in society will say things like, my life, my choice, right? My body, my choice. Scripture never gives us that permission. 
Everything we have in life has been given to us by God, everything, including our bodies, to be used not at our dispense how we want to use them in any way we would like to use them, but to be used for his glory, for his name. It's been given to us for that purpose. He created us, he defines what's good and what's right, and he made us to be used for his glory. What's the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's the whole point. God's word is true, powerful, and effective. To follow the world on sexuality is convenient, easy, and popular. And hear me when I say that. To follow the world's view of sexuality is convenient, easy, and popular. You don't have to make any hard stands. You don't have to tell anybody they're wrong. We don't like to do that. You don't have to say anything that's going to offend someone. To follow the world's view of sexuality is convenient, easy, and popular. But the word of God is true, powerful, and effective. It stands in opposition, it stands in opposition to the world and their opinions. In their opinions. And I would say, the world's idea of sexuality may be convenient, easy, and popular, but it leads to no good thing. God's word is true, effective, and powerful, and it leads to eternal glory. Eternal glory. Our society is dead set, dead set to getting immediate gratification. That's what it's all about. Immediate gratification. There's no patience. There's no waiting. There's no understanding those things. But immediate gratification is what we're longing for constantly. And when immediate gratification becomes our greatest desire and pursuit, we will always go with the world because God never promises us immediate gratification. He promises us eternal glory, eternal life. God's authority is over us. What, ma what we do publicly matters. What we do privately matters. What we do in our bedroom matters because God knows. God knows. Again, you don't have to do what God says. That's not what this means. I'm not telling you you have to do what God says. You can do what you want to do. You can do what you want to do. You don't have to do what God says, but you will have to give an answer to God for what you do. That's the purpose of this. You will have to give an answer to God for what you do. God's people are under God's authority. Secondly, God's people are distinct from the world. We saw this for him in verse 3. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. God spe specifically here is going to assert that we don't live like the world lives. We are distinct. We are different. We are set apart. By the way, y'all know what the word holy means, right? To be set apart. So when God says, be holy for I am holy, he is saying, I am distinctly different than this world. So therefore, you be set apart for me. You be holy for I am holy. You are distinct. You are different from them. So God is going to walk through verses 6 on down here and prohibit a lot of different things that the world does and considers right. It begins in verse 6. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I don't know how it was in that day, but this you will read this euphemism of uncover nakedness. We dealt with this back in Genesis with Noah's kids, if y'all remember, uh, this is a euphemism for the sexual act. So he's giving them this sense. And so he's saying, you shall not approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. For them, obviously, incestual relationships the Lord is going to prohibit here in verses 6 
through 18. The reason being, and I think ultimately the point of this is to prohibit these relationships is because the Israelites are going to be living close together in close quarters with families all right there together. And so the, the threat or the pursuit or even the temptation to have some relationship with someone who is close to you as in a relative, the Lord says you have to not do that, right? So he's saying to them, you can't live that way. So he goes through these incestual relationships here through 6 through 18. And, and you guys feel free to read this in your quiet time in the morning if you want to. And all this other stuff, you can do it. But I'm telling you, that's what he's talking about there, 6 through 18. He goes through that. He goes through adultery. Look at verse 20. And you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife, so make you unclean with her. He goes through adultery here. He goes through not only incest and adultery, he talks about child sacrifice. Why does child sacrifice get here? You shall not give, verse 21, give any of your children to offer them to Molech and so profane the name of, the, of your God. I am the Lord. He's here talking about this idea of child sacrifice because the Lord is saying the children, the products of sex, right? Children are my children, not yours. And so even this idea of giving them to Molech, they'll describe the worship of Molech, which was this ancient Near Eastern deity, which clearly, because it comes up several times, required child sacrifices to them. And so the worship of Molech will be described as spiritual prostitution. Y'all remember that from last week? It will be described as spiritual prostitution. So it's saying there the, that, that worship of Molech is like a, an adulterous relationship. So if you give that child, that child is my child. Those are children made in my image. You don't have the right, even though they come from your line, you birth them, they are still my children ultimately. So even he's saying the products of the sexual act, the Lord, they belong to the Lord, not to you, right? So you don't get to use them how you want to, especially in offering them up in this adulterous worship relationship that you may have with Molech. He says you can't do that either. He speaks to homosexuality. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. It is an abomination. And then finally he speaks to bestiality, verse 23. And you shall not lie with any animal, and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it in its perversion. He's saying all of these things because, believe it or not, these are the things that other nations were doing. The Egyptians and the Canaanites. This is what they were doing. Now, if you remember correctly, uh, back in Genesis, y'all turn with me to Genesis 15. Remember, all of the first five books of the Bible were written by who? Yeah, good. Moses. Moses is right. Y'all remember when Moses was called, right? Out in the wilderness in the burning bush. The bush was on fire, wasn't consumed. He's called there. And then the Lord brings his people out of Egypt. He gets them to Sinai after about three months of marching. They stay at Sinai for about a year. Then they head off to the promised land. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy were all written from that time of Sinai until Moses' death that he doesn't get in, right? So it's all written as the people are going to the promised land. Does that make sense to everybody? So in some sense... There are, this is written as an identity for the people of God, right? Here's who you are. Here's where you came from. Here's who your God is. But it's also written as a, as a, an argument, if you will, for why the people were going to the promised land and why it was their land. Does that make sense to everybody? Here's why we're going there and here's why we're going to take it for ourselves, so as they're marching there, the Lord is saying, we're going to the promised land, and this is why we are doing it. And notice what he says in Genesis 15. What Did, did I tell you all what verse it was? Oh, man, I was hoping you all tell me. 15, 16. He says to him, as he's given this promise to Moses, I'll go back up a little bit, I mean to Abraham. He says, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. 
Behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, that's Egypt, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years, y'all Egypt, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Right? We've been reading that. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. We'll see this going through the wilderness. For the iniquity of the Amorites, that's the Canaanites. They're part of that Canaanite clan. clans. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. In other words, it's not time now, but it will be time, and the Canaanites will show who they are the Amorites and the Canaanites will show who they are by their wickedness. And so God is saying, when you go into that promised land, recognize the judgment that will be coming will be coming from, I'll be, will be coming of my judgment because of their sinfulness. And so the Canaanites were under the judgment of God because their wickedness, right? So the point here is don't be like them. Their choices lead to judgment. But you're my people and you're different. You pursue after me. You're distinct. Why are they distinct? They're distinct because of salvation itself. Turn with me, flip with me to, to 1 Corinthians 6. Paul is dealing with a sin issue in the church in 1 Corinthians. By the way, in chapter 5, he's drawing attention, allusions back to Leviticus 18. But notice what he says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Or do you not know, speaking to them of how they live different, you're to live different, do you not know that the unrighteous, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. Y'all know those are all things just listed in Leviticus 18, right? Y'all saw that? None of them. He just listed there, the, the, he listed the sexually immoral, obviously. Idolaters, they sacrificed a Molech. Adulterers, again, with the idea of don't, don't sleep with your neighbor's wife nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. In verse 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. You were like the Canaanites, but you've been made different. You've been purchased by Christ himself. You've been washed in the blood. You are distinct as my people. So therefore, you don't practice sexual immorality and you don't practice adultery and you don't practice homosexuality and you don't practice those things because you have been purchased and you are distinct and different. You're distinct because you've been purchased by the precious blood of Christ. You're distinct even in that passage because you have the spirit of God. You're distinct because of your love for one another, not your hatred. You are distinct as God's people, as God's people. Now, man, if we think of it, we think of the nature of our society even today. And really part of the sexual revolution that we have now through gender ideology, through the uh, mainstreaming of homosexuality and other things, part of it is ultimately attack at God's word. So it's after, it's reversing creation, I mean ultimately, because if you reverse creation, then you remove God's authority. So the attack on creation has been going on throughout history, and it's just been one attack at the other, such as evolution itself, uh, non-theistic evolution and, and all itself is just one attack of many on creation because if you can separate creation from God as a creator, then you can do what you want to. 
If you just, if we just all came from a blob that got hit by lightning at some time, then we're really no different from the rock. Uh, it's just happenstance or chance. And so we can live how we want to. We can do what we want to. The authority really is ours if those things are true. But if we were created by a divine being who is all-powerful, all-knowing, if we're created by him, designed for his glory and for his name, then we must respond and answer to him. And so ultimately, we're trying to move it. So the attack with these things is really attack against creation itself and God's word. And one of the ways they seek to do this is they seek to, to say things like homosexuality and other things are not really the same thing we're talking about today that we're talking about in scripture. It's not the same type thing. What they're talking about are these ancient Near Eastern rituals that they would do. And surely we wouldn't do that. And, and surely those aren't things. So they're separating out today what we call homosexuality today from what the scriptures are calling. Or they say things in like, well, if you say we got to live by Leviticus, then we can't boil a child in his mother's milk. And I simply say, yeah, I don't want to boil a child in mother's milk. Good, I'm living by that too. So we say you're bringing in all of those things into the mix. And so the constant attack is against God's word to say it. But there are trajectories, for example. You'll see in scripture trajectories. Such as slavery. We'll have to deal with slavery. And in the scriptures, slavery is there in Leviticus. It defines it. But the trajectory is such that by the time we get to the Old Testament, we see that God's great design is not for people to live in bondage and slavery, but for them to be free, right? So they can follow after the Lord on their own. The trajectory goes there. How God deals with people where they're at to get them to where they need to be, correct? You even see this in these marriage relationships because you see some of these early patriarchs have several wives and they, they have it this way, but God's design is one man and one woman. That goes back to Adam and Eve. And so those trajectories there in the Old Testament change. Now, by the time we get to the New Testament, we see it's back. Husbands love your wives. Wives love your husbands. One man, one woman. We sit there and see that that's God's good design. And he, he, he meets his people where they're at and he gets them to where they need to be. But when it comes to homosexuality, many people make the argument that that's what he's doing there. He's got, he started you there, but he's getting you to where you see it's okay. But when you get to the New Testament, that is not what happens at all. There's no trajectory toward this being okay in the end. In fact, it's the opposite that's the case. Over and over again in this with homosexuality, you see it being defined clearly. Romans chapter 1. It's 727. I got two more hours. Just kidding. We'll finish up here in a second. Romans chapter 1. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Verse 18. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relationships for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with their passions with one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for this error. Or 1 Timothy chapter 3. I don't think that's right. You also have, let's go, go here. 1 Corinthians 
1 Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians chapter six, nine through 11. If this isn't right, then it's just time to quit. We already read that, didn't we? Good. Timothy says at some place in there, he lists homosexuality as the godlessness of the age. People make the argument, remember, even today, that, you know, Jesus never mentions it. I want to remind you guys, and I mean this with all sincerity from the depth of my heart, of the danger of red-letter Christianity. We believe that every verse from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, right, is inspired by God. And what I mean by that is all of it is Jesus' words. Oftentimes when we put the red letters in there, we think they carry more authority than the others. Jesus doesn't mention it, but he mentions 10,000 other things that speak to how creation is the mandate that we follow and we go after. And the fact we cannot, as believers, and never should, pit Paul against Jesus. They were in harmony because all of it is God's word inspired and inerrant for us. The plain reading of the text shows us that God has designed man and woman to be together. Nature testifies that God has designed man and woman to be together. And no matter what the world tries to do, they are twisting the word of God, the authority of God, and the power and name of God to get their own desires, to get what they want. They're setting themselves up as smarter, better, and wiser than God. And the end to that is destruction. The end is destruction. It's more popular and it's easier to go with the world on these issues. But it is not, it is not God's word. So we have to determine as God's people living under the authority of God that we will live distinct and different, testifying to it. Finally, in verse 27, and I close with this, chapter 19, 18. It's a parenthetical statement. Go back to 26. You shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations so that the land has become unclean. Lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. We as God's people must confess our weakness before him. In the New Testament, and I'll just turn to one place, Romans 10. This will be it, I'm sorry. Paul refers directly to Leviticus 18. And probably, as I've already quoted it, one of the more evangelistic passages in Scripture. The message of salvation to all people. In Leviticus 18 verse 5 it says you shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules if a person does them he shall live by them and Paul says in Romans chapter 10 verse 5 for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law that the person who does the commandments shall live by them but the righteousness based on faith says do not say in your heart who shall ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who shall ascend, descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
In this passage, Paul begins with, uh, with Leviticus 18 as the law. And then he says, but it's not that that we live by. We live by faith in the gospel. But you need to understand that when we put the scriptures together, law and gospel are not opposed to each other. They are doing two different things, two different purposes. The law is asserting how the Christian should pursue after holiness and sanctification, where the gospel is letting us know that without Christ Jesus, we never have any of it. You see, the law teaches us how we're sinners. The law teaches us how we need a Savior. The law teaches us what's required from these things. And the gospel tells us, you can never get it on your own, but I have provided a sacrifice for you. Because in reality, all of us are guilty of sexual immorality that Leviticus 18 tells us. Paul says, many of you were just like them. But you have been washed in the blood. You have been purified. You've been made holy. You have been made right because of Christ. So again, when we read Leviticus, we read it with an understanding that we are utterly and completely dependent upon the gospel because the law is too much for us. The law is too much for us. I thank God for the law. Because it showed me my need of Christ. I thank God for Christ because he redeemed me from the curse of the law that I could never bear myself. Myself. Leviticus 18 just reminds us of that and how we live in light of what Christ has done. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your kindness to us. Help us to be faithful to your word. Help us to be faithful to who you are. Help us not to do, Father, what is convenient, easy, or popular. Help us to do and seek after what is true and powerful and effective, the word of God in all things. Thank you for this, Father, and thank you for Jesus. And may all of us leave here not trusting in and of ourselves, not claiming our own autonomy. But, Father, may we leave here trusting and holding fast to your word and your truth, Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank y'all so much. Smile and tell somebody you love them. I love y'all.